So Acts chapter 11, starting at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas. And Saul. Well, according to the Gallup organization, between 1938 and 1999, the number of people who were members of a local church, not necessarily a Christian church, but were a member of some kind of church, stayed constant at about 70% over that 60-year time frame. After that, between 1999 and 2018, there was an enormous drop-off the likes of which they had never seen before. Between 1999 and 2018, that number dropped 20% to 50% of Americans saying that they belong to some kind of church. Other research I found suggests that perhaps less than 20%, even 17%, uh, around 17, 18% of people in the United States attend a Bible-believing Christian church. According to research from the Barna Group, only 17% of Christians have a Christian worldview. Believe the Bible. Believe the things the Bible teach, teaches. Now, I, while I would argue that the United States has never been a formerly Christian nation, we've certainly come a long way, and Christianity has certainly lost its place of prominence in society. And if you think about it, a hundred years ago, you know, you might talk to someone about the Bible, and it was kind of a agreed-upon fact that the Bible was true. That didn't mean that you believed it, didn't mean that you went to church, didn't mean that you followed it, but there was this kind of agreement that the Bible was God's Word, and there was this kind of cultural uh, identity centered around Christianity. We don't have that any longer. Many Americans today don't believe the Bible, don't believe it's authoritative. Rod Dreher, uh, author of The Benedict Option, puts it a little, a little bit pessimistically when he says this. He said, don't be fooled by the large number of churches you see today. Unprecedented numbers of young Americans say they have no religious affiliation at all. According to the Pew Research Center, one in three 18 to 29-year-olds have put religion aside, if they ever picked it up in the first place. If the demographic trends continue, our churches will soon be empty. 
Even more troubling, many of the churches that do stay open will have been hollowed out by a sneaky kind of secularism to the point where the Christianity taught there is devoid of power and life. It has already happened to most of them. Now, I think that's a little bit of a little bit too pessimistic, but I think he's on to something there. I mean, if you look at demographic, uh, demographic t- trends, you see that the people who are going to church tend to be mostly the people who are older, and the people who are younger are tending to lose their faith. And even among the churches that do exist, many of them don't no longer preach the Bible, preach the gospel. I believe that the culture world wars are over and we've lost. There's no definition of Christian that we can say that our culture is any longer. And yet there's hope because throughout history, God has preserved what is called remnants. And you go to the store and you buy a roll of carpet. Sometimes you buy a remnant, which is what's left over from another job. A remnant is something that's left over. And we see throughout Scripture that God always preserves a remnant. For example, in 1 Kings 19, Elijah has just defeated all the prophets of Baal. And yet, the Queen Jezebel is trying to kill him. And so he's terrified, and he talks to God, and he's discouraged, and he's like, we're all done. There's, there's no other prophets like me. Everybody has forsaken the way, and I've done what, I've tried to, what I'm supposed to do, but it's failing. And yet God reminds him of what he's going to do. And he reminds him in verse 18 of 1 Kings 19. He says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So God preserved a remnant of people who still followed after Jesus. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of a remnant who would remain after the Assyrians came and and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Isaiah chapter 10, it says, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In, In truth, a remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. I believe that God does a similar thing in our culture. He preserves a remnant. No matter how far we get away from God as a culture, God preserves a people for himself, a bride adorned to receive him when he comes back. And we see in this passage... That not everyone followed after the Lord, but there were some. Look at what it says in verses 19 to 20 again. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some. But there were some. Some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. See, we see in this passage that there were some who obeyed the Lord Jesus, who did what Jesus said. What did Jesus say? Jesus gave this great commission to his disciples. Matthew 28, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and 
make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Note what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, go into all the world and only preach to Jews. But that's what a lot of people were doing in that day. But there were some who obeyed Jesus. There are some who listened to what Jesus said. In our culture, the same thing is true. Many people in our culture, even many Christians, don't even know what the Bible says. And even among the ones who do know what the Bible says, there's an even less percentage of those who actually do what Jesus said. See, the majority of Christians will never share their faith. But there will be some. The majority of Christians and majority of people will not honor God with their sexuality. But there will be some. The majority of people will not give to God as God has called them to. But there will be some. The majority of people will not give God uh, their addictions and trust in Him to change them. But there will be some. The majority of people will not give to God those things that are harmful to community. Slander, lying, duplicity. But there will be some. There will always be some who follow after Jesus, who do what he says. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I used to read this passage and think that this was talking about working your way to heaven. You had to be a really good person to get to heaven. And if you tried really hard, you could get to heaven. But I don't think it's saying that at all. I think it's just stating the reality that most people won't follow after Jesus. They won't believe what he says. Think about it this way. A um, while back, I was going to Subway, and I texted my wife Stephanie. I was like, do you want something for sub- from Subway? And, of course, there's a lot of different options at Subway. So she texted me what she wanted. It was like a turkey sub with provolone cheese and, and a bunch of other things on it. And so I went to Subway, and then I got out my phone and read what she wanted from that text message. Then sometime after that, somebody else was going to Subway to get something for Stephanie, and they asked what she would like. And, of course, I didn't remember exactly what it was. So I went through my text feed, and then I forwarded it to them and said, this is what she would want. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think I did that to earn her love? No. That, I mean, how silly would it be for me if I knew what she wanted to go to Subway and say, I know she wants a turkey and, um, and provolone, but I'm going to ha- order her ham and cheese instead. I mean, why would I do something like that? It's second nature that I would want to do what she wanted, to get her what she wanted. The same thing is true in our relationship with God. If we have a relationship with God, if we believe He is who He says He is, then why wouldn't we want to do what He wants us to do? Why wouldn't we want to follow after Him? And yet many don't do that. Many follow down the road that leads to destruction. But there are some who follow the way that leads to life. And we see in this passage that there are some who follow Jesus, who do what He says. And it says in the text that the hand of the Lord was with them and the great number turned and believed in the Lord. Amy Carmichael 
missionary to India, said this, Certain it is that the reason there is so much shallow living, much talk but little obedience, is that so few people are prepared to be like the pine on the hilltop, alone in the wind for God. The gate is narrow that leads to life, and few find it. So there are some who do what Jesus says. Second, we see in this passage that there are some who invested in God's people. The church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas to the church in Antioch to kind of figure out what's going on. And it says when he arrived there that he saw the grace of God and he was glad. He was filled with joy because he saw what God was doing in this place. And not only did he resolve to help them, but he encouraged them in their faith and encouraged them to stay steadfast. And then he goes to Tarsus to get Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul. And he gets Paul, and they spend an entire year investing in these people, these Gentiles, people from the nations in Antioch. This is something that other Jews would probably have thought was silly. Why would you spend all of this time and all this effort investing in people who are not God's chosen people that are not Jewish? And yet that's exactly what God calls them to do. Sometimes God calls us to do things that to the world make, doesn't make any sense. Why would you invest in certain people if they're just going to turn and walk away from the Lord? Why would you invest in people if they're going to turn away from you? Yet that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to follow after Him in His footsteps. It's been said that in churches, 20% of people do 80% of the work. That's the common euphemism. And I'm very encouraged in our church that I don't believe that that is the case at all. In our church, to your credit, I think the number of people that attend this church regularly who serve is probably close to 85-90%. And so we believe as a church that investing in God's people is important. But sometimes it can get discouraging. Sometimes it can feel like we're just spinning the wheels. And to the Jews, to the outside world in this day, what Paul, what Barnabas was doing would have been silly. Why would you spend all this time? And yet God brings the increase. God is faithful You think about the Apostle Paul, and he went to many different churches, invested in many different churches. And some of them he came back to after some time, and he found that they were following after the Lord. But many of them he came back and he found that they had gone right back to the way that they were living before. Yet he had spent all this time investing in them. But he had this heartbeat to serve the church. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the, in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I'm rejoicing. I rejoice with you all. Paul says, even if I am put to death 
for your faith. It will be worth it. And it's a risk, of course, because he knows that they might not follow after Jesus. But he believes it's worth the risk. Some people believe that it's worthwhile to invest in God's people. Finally, we see in this passage that there are some who look like Jesus. The text tells us that in Antioch, the disciples, for the very first time, are referred to as Christians. They're no longer Jews. They're no longer a subset of Judaism. Now, in some unique, special way, they are associated with Christ Jesus. We don't know exactly why they started calling them Christians, but we know that they were associated with Jesus Christ. And I'd ask us, our If people saw us from the outside, would they call us Christians? Ones who follow after Jesus. Further, would we look like Christ? We see in this passage that these people demonstrated the heart of Christ by giving. A prophet named Agabus comes to Antioch and he prophesies that there's going to be a great famine. And what are these new Christians in Antioch do? They say, all right. Let's take up collection. How can we help meet this need? And so they send uh, money to the church in Jerusalem so that everyone would have food to eat. So they have the heart of Christ in giving. And we see in Jesus' ministry that God, that, that, that Jesus' heart is to give. And that is the characteristic that most defines who he is. In Second Thessalonians two sixteen to 17 it says this, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 4, 7-8 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he, speaking of Christ, descended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Matthew 26, it's shortly before Jesus is about to be crucified. He's in the upper room, and it says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. Saying, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. The heart of God, the heart of Christ is to give. And if we want to look like Christ, we need to be people who give. I'm not talking about financial giving. I'm talking about people who give of themselves. Business researchers have defined people as either givers or takers in the workplace. Takers use other people to fulfill their own goals. Givers don't care about what happens. They just want to invest in other people. And the remarkable thing is that business researchers have found that environments that have a lot of givers often tend to be more successful than environments that have a lot of takers. It seems kind of counterintuitive. You think that the people who want to get ahead the most would be the people that are most successful, but often that's not the case. And Christ calls us to be givers. 
There's so many people in our world that are takers, and we experience so many people in our world that are takers. You know, when you look at someone who's not a believer, how many people in their life have tried to take advantage of them? Tried to take advantage of them financially, maybe relationally, maybe even abuse them? What if they experience someone who genuinely, genuinely cares about them? Who doesn't have any agenda, who doesn't have any ulterior motives, who simply wants to show them the love of Christ? I think it would stand out in an amazing way. Because the truth is, the church has a public relations problem in the United States. Many people view the church negatively and Christians negatively. A few years ago, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons' landmark book, Unchristian, talked about the views of outsiders and how they viewed Christians. They found that 91% considered Christians to be anti-homosexual. 87% considered them judgmental. 85% considered them hypocritical. 75% too political. Uh, 70% insensitive to others. The sad fact is, a lot of this is our own fault. A lot of it is because we've tried to be takers rather than givers. We've tried to take power, tried to take authority, tried to take influence, rather than share the love of Christ with those around us. There's a man by the name of Oswald Golter, and he was a missionary in northern China during the 1940s. And he had been a missionary for 10 years, and then he was on his way back home, and he stopped in India. And while he was waiting there in India, he started walking around, and he found this warehouse where there were a bunch of refugees that were extremely poor, uh, people that you know nobody wanted to deal with. And so he came up to them and he asked them, so what do you want for Christmas? They looked at him like, we're not Christians. We don't celebrate Christmas. He said, that's okay. I just want to know what you want for Christmas. And they talked to him. They said that they wanted some kind of English, German pastries or something like that. And so he went and he cashed in his ticket. And he went and bought baskets full of these German pastries. And he gave it to these refugees. After that, he was teaching a class, and uh, he told the story, and then the student asked him, so why did you do that for them? They weren't even Christians. They don't even believe in Christ. And he replied, he says, I know, but I do. He says, I do. I believe in Christ. I want to look like Christ. I want to give as Christ gave. So I'd ask us, do we look like Christ? Do we give to others like Christ has given to us? Do we care for the poor like Christ cared for the poor? Do we defend those who cannot defend themselves? There are some who did what Jesus said. There are some who invested in God's people. There are some who look like Christ. There's another man. His name was William Carey. He was a shoemaker and he wasn't a very good shoemaker from all accounts. And at nighttime, he would spend his time studying German and Greek and Hebrew and all these languages. And people looked at him and said, thought to themselves, he's kind of wasting his time here. He had a young uh, a family at that point, And people thought he'd probably be better off spending his time Uh, investing in another job than to waste his time learning these languages. 
But the thing is, this wasn't just a hobby. He had felt God's call to reach the nations from pretty early age. And he was doing anything he could to go and preach the gospel to people outside of Europe. Now we think of missions today and missions, you know, has become more popular. But back during that time frame, it was like, if the heathen want to be saved, they can, you know, God will bring somebody to them. We don't need to worry about sharing the gospel during this time frame. And so there weren't missionaries that went cross-cultural that, that much. So he studied these things, and he finally figured out what to do. And then he went to be a missionary to India, and he became the first Protestant missionary in the modern era. And because of that, because he followed after God's will, he, he uh, inspired a generation of other missionaries like David Livingston, Adoniram Judson. And now there are untold thousands, perhaps even millions, who have come to know Jesus because this one man, William Carey, he followed after Jesus. He invested in God's people, and he looked like Jesus. Well, I don't usually carry a lot of cash. Um, Stephanie doesn't either, but usually she has a little bit more than I do. And so if I need something, if I need something that I have to pay cash for, I'll go and I'll ask her for cash. And I've had this conversation with her, a similar type conversation a number of times, and I'll be like, do you have any cash? She's like, well, I only have $13. How much do you need? And I said, that's, that's fine. I only need like $6. And I think sometimes we come to God and we're like, I only have a little bit to offer. I, I don't know many Christians. I go to a small church. I don't have that many skills. And we offer God, I, I don't really have enough to offer. And yet God is like, that's enough. That's enough. Even if there's only some people who follow after me, if, even if there's only some people who invest in my kingdom, even if there's only some people who look like Jesus, that's enough. Because he can work through the little things. He can work through the few. There are some who do what Jesus says. There are some who invest in God's people. There's some who look like Jesus. The question I have for us, are we among them? Are we among those people who look like Jesus, who obey Jesus, who invest in God's kingdom? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are giving God. And we thank you that most of all that you gave us the gift of your son so that we might have life so that we could experience a relationship with you that begins today and goes into eternity. Lord, we know that the road is wide that leads to destruction, and many follow that road. But Lord, I pray that we would be among those who walk on the narrow road, who walk on the road that sometimes is lonely, sometimes is dangerous, but we know that on that road, you're walking with us every step of the way. And no matter what we have to offer, we know that that's enough. Because we know that you're enough for us. It's not about what we can do. It's about what you can do through us. Lord, we pray that you'd 
strengthen our hearts. As Barnabas came to the church and encouraged the church, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be strengthened, that we would be steadfast in doing what you call us to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.